Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Join me in welcoming back Dr. William Marshall. Thank you, ma'am. This uh, series on transubstantiation is divided into two parts. The first part I will give you tonight. The second part, next week, we'll get into the actual medieval debates. And we will find out what are the still open questions kicked around by scholastic theologians and neo-medievalists and other people who have fun. But tonight, what I mainly want to do is dispel the idea that transubstantiation is a medieval notion that the argument about it was a medieval affair, almost nitpicking, so to speak, as though the ancient church had never said anything one way or another about such stuff. So I want to go back into the church fathers, and I prepared a handout sheet for you. I hope you got it before the Xerox machine was zapped. If you have your sheet, you will notice that there is an omission at the very top of the sheet. My wife told me in no uncertain terms that I was to list there the four scripture passages that you need to look at to understand the, the patristic controversies and the rest of the debate. And I thought they were too obvious and everybody knew them. However, maybe not. So in case you don't know where to look in the Bible, here it is. You want to go to Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. Now turn over to Mark. Go to Mark chapter 14 and look at verses 22 to 25. Now go over to Luke chapter 22, verses 15 to 20. All right? Now, those are the three synoptic Gospels. They each have this story of our Lord's institution of the Last Supper. That's what those passages are. We have one more key passage, and this one is not in the Gospels, but in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 23 to 25, where Paul tells his audience what he had received as tradition from the apostles and was handing on to them, what Jesus did in the night in which he, he died. All right? What we have in John, rather, is the long meditation in John chapter 6 on the sayings of Jesus about his body and his blood. My flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have not life in you, says John chapter 6. 
But if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, uh, I will raise you up on the last day. So there in John chapter 6 is the connection between communion, the Eucharist, and the resurrection. And as we shall see in a moment, the church fathers strongly emphasized that connection. Now, before I get into these passages, I want to give you a note about vocabulary and what brought this issue up. There's a strange combination in every one of those gospel passages about the institution of the Last Supper, in every one of them. There is an ostension, the evident presence of the bread. The ostension of something is where you say this. I'm talking about this. That's ostension. And joined to that ostension are surprising words. He says, this is my body. He's pointing at bread, obviously bread, and he says, this is my body. So, the fathers of the church, all of them, drew the obvious inference, namely, that the bread had been changed into the body of Christ. Had been changed into the body of Christ. The Latin fathers all said so, and they used the verbs mutare, mutatio, a change, and transfiguratio. The Greek fathers used their words, ordinary words for a change, such as metabole. I have it written out for you there in the transliteration and in the Greek. I couldn't do all as much of the Greek as I wanted because have you ever tried hunting and pecking to get Greek in that wretched word processing program called Microsoft Word. Microsoft Nightmare is, never mind. <laughs> the Greek fathers called what happens here, this change, a metabole, or they called it a metapoiesis, a remaking, a making into something else. Or they called it a metaskele, or, and I love this word, they called it a metarithmesis, which again is just a transformation, a change. These are all words used ordinarily to mean a change. Why do I emphasize this? Because they're not used ordinarily to mean an addition or an enhancement or an enrichment. You come to my house and I serve you a slice of bread for lunch, okay? And you say, this is bread. I say, yeah, wait a minute. I'm gonna change it. And I spread some butter on it. I have enhanced it. I have made an addition. But I haven't changed it from being bread into being something else. You see the difference? Okay. People change recipes all the time. They have their favorite bread recipe. One day, instead of the usual ingredients, they throw in extra wheat germ. Now it is enhanced bread, super bread, whatever. That's not the vocabulary we've got here. This is not enhanced bread. It's not bread anymore, as we shall see. It's not enhanced. It's not added to. That cuts down Luther's view. 
Luther thought that the substance of the bread stayed there. But now it was enriched because the body and blood of Christ came and joined it, like butter on the bread. So I call Luther's theory the buttered bread theory. Well, it's not what these words mean, as we shall see. The real question is what these words for change meant in this context. Was the change a real one, or was it one that was symbolic? How about putting it this way? Were we dealing here with a change in what it is, or in what it means? Changing what something means is on the symbol level. If I'm like Humpty Dumpty, I can change the meaning of any word I use. I'm going to say rabbit, but I'm going to mean horse by it, says Humpty Dumpty. And he's changed the meaning. Is that a real change? No. It's a semantic change, and that's on the symbol level. What kind of change was this, real or, quote, symbolic or intentional or whatever you want to call it? I think we're going to get the answer to that from the fathers of the church beginning, how about this, at getting 1,100 years before the Middle Ages ever started. Is that early enough? I want to start with the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, who was put to death in the year 107. 107 AD under the Emperor Trajan. And here's what he says in the third verse of his letter to the Romans. As he was being led to his death by Roman soldiers, he wrote letters to the bishops and the clergy of each city he went by or went through. And he wrote a letter ahead to Rome saying, I'm on my way. And in his letter to the Romans, he said, don't bother to feed me. I'm not hungry. I want the bread of God, comma, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, born of the seed of David. And for my drink, I desire his blood. Ignatius of Antioch, 107, he wants the Eucharist. He wants to be fed at Mass. He's not interested in other food. And what does he call it? The bread of God. And what does he say the bread of God is? The flesh of Jesus Christ, born of the seed of David, and his blood for my drink. So obviously he takes for granted and what we receive in the Eucharist is bread of God, is the body of Christ, and the blood of Christ. Now then, he wrote a letter to the people of Smyrna, and S-M-Y-R-N-A, Smyrna, and they were called the Smyrnians. My students can never spell that. A letter to the Smyrnians, and in chapter 7 of that letter, he's talking about his least favorite local heretics. They were Gnostics. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. And that meant they thought matter was evil, and so our Lord and Savior could not have taken a real body. That would have been a defilement. God could not have a material body. What did the Gnostics in 107 
in Asia Minor do to advertise their belief about matter? Interesting. They refused to go to communion. They abstained from the Eucharist because they do not recognize it's the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father raised up. Okay. There's no point in going to communion to receive the body of Christ if you don't think he had one. Clear? Last quotation from Ignatius. In his letter to the Ephesians, he's giving people advice about staying in line with the bishop. He says, remain united in obedience to the bishop and to the priests with an undivided mind, breaking one soul bread, which is the remedy of immortality, the antidote to death, so as to live in Jesus Christ forever. That's his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 20, verse 7. Obviously, he's thinking of John's gospel. Eat my body, drink my blood, and I will raise you up on the last day. The Eucharist is an entitlement, a preparation for the resurrection. And he takes that perfectly literally. And obviously, the elements received in communion could not have this wonderful supernatural effect making you ready for the resurrection, physically ready, if they were not, in fact, the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to go down, oh, maybe 13 years, and go over to Rome and consult our favorite early catechism teacher known to us as Justin Martyr. He, went to, he was from Palestine originally. Went to Rome and opened up a catechism school. Hung out his shingle to teach catechetics. And apparently did well at it. And um, around the year uh, 120, he wrote an apologia, a defense. This is the first of them. And in chapter 66, he's talking about the Eucharist. Here's what he says. We call this food Eucharist. No one may share in it unless he believes in the truth of our doctrines and has already been purified and born again by the water of baptism and unless he lives according to the precepts of Jesus Christ. Period. I'm going to go on. But stop just right right there. This is Rome. This is 120 A.D. This is the early church, like really early. Notice there's no such thing as open communion. You can't come to this Eucharist unless you meet three tests. You believe our doctrines? That's test number one. Have you been baptized? That's test number two. Are you in mortal sin or have you been living according to the precepts of Christ? That's test number three. If you flunk any of the three tests, don't come up. As the priests say these days, I'll, I'll wave my hand over you, I'll give you a blessing, but you can't receive. See, Roman custom doesn't change in these great matters. All right. 
I go back to my text. Why do you have to meet these tests? He goes on. For we do not look upon this food as an ordinary bread and an ordinary drink. Rather, just as our Savior Jesus Christ was made flesh by the word of God, truly took flesh and blood for our salvation, so also, according to the teaching we have received, this thanked over food, Eucharisticized food, is his flesh and blood, which nourishes our flesh and our blood. Chapter 66 in the first apology. The blessed, we call it today the consecrated host, the consecrated bread and wine. In those days, they call it Eucharistified. Thanksgiving prayers had been said over it. All right? That's what the Greek word means, thanked over food. And we say it is not ordinary food and drink. And it nourishes our flesh and our blood. Now then, let's go a little bit further into the West. Let's go up the coast of Italy all the way to France, to that lovely little town called Lyon, where they had another Palestinian running loose. He was the bishop. His name was Irenaeus. And he became bishop there, and he said, well, he wrote a big book against the heresies, mostly Gnostic heresies. Oh, and by his time, the Gnostics had given up the practice of never going to communion. They must have figured it made them stick out like sore thumbs. So at this point, they were faking it, and they were going. <clears throat> Irenaeus said to them, we offer God his own gifts back to him. We offer God's own gifts back to him. As we affirm on the one hand the intimate union of the word with human nature, and on the other hand the resurrection of the flesh, which will be reunited to the soul. For just as bread coming from the earth, upon receiving the divine invocation, ceases to be ordinary bread and becomes the Eucharist, composed of two elements, the one heavenly, that's the word of God, the other earthly, that's the flesh of our Lord, so also our bodies, upon receiving the Eucharist, are no longer subject to terminal decay, terminal corruption, but have the hope of resurrection for eternity. Now, the last two passages I have just given you are both remarkable, not only for their date, but for what they each say. Justin Martyr says, the change that happens on our altars is just as real as the incarnation was. Just as he took real flesh and real blood. So, this bread becomes real flesh and real blood. Right? The other one, the passage from Irenaeus says, the change that happens on the altar is just as real as the resurrection will be. Does everybody see? We're talking here about real changes, and everybody understands this in the first century and in the second century. I go on. 
to Clement of Alexandria. I don't have much to say about him, but in his book, The Pedagogue, The Teacher, he says, twofold is the Lord's blood. It is bodily, and by it we have been redeemed, semicolon. It is spiritual, and by it we have been anointed. To drink the blood of Jesus is to share in the Lord's incorruptibility. I had to quote you that last sentence, because there in one phrase, um, Clement of Alexandria puts the connection together. Why is the Eucharist so good for you when it comes time for the resurrection? Because it gives you a share in the Lord's incorruptibility. Eat the incorruptible and you share his incorruptibility. Does everybody see? And the blood is twofold in the sense that on the one hand, this is the real flesh that was born of the Virgin Mary and suffered on the cross. Okay? And on the other hand, it is now this spiritual anointing. Does everybody see? I couldn't resist giving you a quotation from Origen. O-R-I-G-I-N. And that's wrong. Confound it, I did it again. His name is E-N on the end. Origen, E-N. Not origin, that means the beginning. O-R-I-G-E-N. There he is. That, uh, he's writing around 215. <coughs> and he's writing a homily on Exodus. And he's notorious for allegorizing. And spiritualizing and allegorizing and symbolifying everything. So I thought it would be nice to see something he says. Um, <coughs> and he came down to us in Latin. So I thought you'd like to see it. You all ready for this? You who are admitted to be present at our divine mysteries, when you receive the body of Christ, take it with every caution and veneration, lest anything of the bread should fall, lest anything of the consecrated gift be wiped out or blotted up. Um, you believe yourself guilty, and you are right to think so, if anything falls because of negligence. Aha. Is that characteristic of the Catholic Church? I used to take communion all the time in the Lutheran Church, and they never had a little plate to put under my chin. Patten, we call it. Nobody cared if particles fell. But in 215 AD, this highly allegorical thinking doctor maintained, you've got to be careful with those. He's a witness. You have got to be careful with those particles. You may not let them fall. You are guilty of gross negligence if anything like that happens. No dropped particles, no dropped drops. Everything preserved with caution and veneration. Now, why would you be cautious and venerate uh, something that only meant? 
the body of Christ. Hmm? Why is there no caution like this in Protestant churches to this day? Because the bread's just a symbol. Nothing has changed but its meaning. This is the Calvinist doctrine, exactly. Nothing has changed really but its meaning. Well, so, meaning doesn't matter so much. If it means the body, it means the body. If it's on the floor, it still means the body. If it fell down, it's still got its new meaning. Don't worry about it. No, 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 says the Catholic Church. That particle is a bit of the body of Christ. You worry about that. You be careful what you're doing. Think about that as you practice communion in the hand. Which, by the way, these people all did. Communion in the hand was regular in these centuries. I have a quotation now from another Egyptian. A monk named Serapion who um, wrote um, uh, a, um, an Elchologia, a prayer book, and here's how he words the epiclesis, that's the invocation at the end of consecration. O God of truth, let thy word come upon this bread, that the bread may become the body of the word, and upon this chalice, that the wine may become the veritable blood. Dot, dot, dot. The medicine of life. Pharmakon zoes. The medicine of life. The life drug. The life preserving, supernatural life, giving and preserving drug. The medicine from sin. Yes? All right. Thank you, Serapion. I move along to everybody's favorite fourth century doctor, St. Athanasius. He's, uh, we're very lucky to have this. It's a fragment of a lost sermon that he gave at Easter time, which was the right time in those days to give sermons to the newly baptized. And here is something he said in that sermon, which was discovered years later. You will see the clergy carrying bread and a chalice of wine. So long as the invocations and prayers have not yet begun, there's nothing but bread and wine. But once the great and admirable prayers have been spoken, the bread becomes the body and the wine the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're coming here to celebrate <coughs> mysteries. This bread and this wine, so long as the prayers and the invocations have not taken place, are just that, bread and wine. But when the great prayers and holy invocations have been made, the word comes down into the bread and wine, and it is the word's body. That's word with a capital W, word as in the second person of the Trinity, the divine word. Does everybody see? I now have a bunch of quotations for you uh, from, uh, oh, he's, he deserves to be better known. This is St. Cyril of Jerusalem, which in those days, of course, was no longer called Jerusalem, except in church usage. It was called Aelia Capitolina, because that's the name Hadrian wanted to have after he smashed the place again. It was another uprising of the Jews. They smashed the place and changed its name. But anyway, our boy, um, Cyril, 
became bishop there and gave a famous series of catechetical instructions. Um, this is number 22 of those, and here's what he says. He certainly changed water into wine at the marriage of Cana, so he can darn well change the wine into blood. Hey, that's the typical thinking of a father of the church. In other words, the change in the altar is as real as the miracle at Cana was. What do you need, Luther, to see this? What do you need, Calvin, a plank over the head? <coughs> um, hence, he goes on, with complete conviction, let us receive them as the body and blood of Christ, for in the appearance of bread you are given the body. And in the appearance of wine, you're given the blood, so that you may become, by sharing in Christ's body and blood, co-corporeal with him and co-sanguinary with Christ. Thus we become Christ-bearers, Christophoroi, as the body of Christ and his blood spread through our members. And so, as Blessed Peter said, we become sharers in the divine nature. First Peter chapter 1, yes? Or is it Second Peter chapter 1? I think it's second. Anyway, Peter said we become sharers in the divine nature. It's a famous phrase. Now we find out how we get to be that is through sharing in the body and blood of the divine Son. Yes. And um, it spreads through our members. One in body, concorporeal. Same in blood, cisimus, co-blooded with him is what we become. And notice he speaks of appearances. The appearance of bread you're given is really the body. In other words, the apparent bread, the looks like bread that you're given, is really the body. Clear? But we're not done with Cyril of Jerusalem. He is really a great source on all of this stuff. Here's another passage from his Catechesis number 22. Whatever the testimony of your senses, faith must assure us fully, and faith certifies without the least doubt that the gift here is of the body and blood of Christ. Ignore the senses. He goes on. Thus instructed and convinced with sure and certain faith that the apparent bread is not bread. Hophenomenos artos uk artos estin. The apparent bread is not bread though it seems so to the taste, but the body of Christ, and that the apparent wine is not wine. Ho phenomenos oinos uk oinos estin. Although our taste buds want to have it so, but the blood of Christ, all right, having been instructed and convinced of all that, share in this bread as in a Spiritual bread. All right. Now, I had to have some fun with you. And uh, being the kind of pedant that I am, 
I love having my fun in Latin. Okay. I couldn't resist giving you on the page this quotation from a Lutheran patristic scholar. This guy was a Lutheran named, named Plitt, Pastor Plitt, P-L-I-T-T. In 1855, he made an edition, an edition, of these, what was left of these catechetical sermons of St. Cyril. And in the preface to his edition, he comments on the one we've just been reading. Si ego dicerem. Oh, all right, I'll give it to you in English. If I said that Christ that as Christ changed the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana, so also the Eucharist changes the wine into blood. If I said that what you eat and drink in the Eucharist has the taste of bread and wine, yes, but nevertheless is neither bread nor wine, but the body and blood of the Lord, if I said all that, who, I ask, would doubt that I was teaching transubstantiation? Thank you, Pastor Plitt. You got it. I don't think his Lutheran bishop could have been too happy with that, but there it is. I'm almost done. But we can't go anywhere without saying some things about St. John Chrysostom. He was a punchy writer. Here is from his homily number 82 on the Gospel of Matthew. He says, look, since he said this is my body, we submit, we believe, we contemplate it with the eyes of the mind. He hasn't given us anything for the senses. Because in the sensible things themselves, Everything is spiritual. In baptism, for example, there is a material element, the water, <coughs> which is administered to us. But what is achieved is a spiritual transformation, rebirth or renovation. Okay, look, if you were an incorporeal being, these incorporeal gifts would be given to you with no intermediary. But as the soul is united to the body, the spiritual gifts are communicated to you by way of sensible things. So let there be no one nowadays who says, Oh, I wish I could see Jesus. I wish I could see his face, his features, see his clothes. Well, you do see him. You touch him. You eat him. He's giving his very self to us. Isn't that great? St. John Chrysostom, ultra-realist about the Eucharist. All right. How did it get there, this body and blood of Christ? Next quotation. What you have under your eyes at the altar is not the product or work of a human power, the one whose action you saw at the Last Supper is the one acting again on our altars. We are but his ministers. 
He's the one who sanctifies. And it is he who transforms. Metaskelzon. It's he who transforms the bread into his body. Okay, not the priest at the altar. He's just a minister. Does everybody see? You don't need a supernatural cause unless you're trying to explain a supernatural effect. And I'm sorry, but a change of symbolic meaning is not a supernatural effect, is it? Anybody can do that. Humpty Dumpty can do that. Same vein. This is from his lovely little homily on the epistle of Jude. It's not a human being who makes these offerings become the body and blood of Christ, but Christ himself who was crucified for us. The priest is there who represents him and pronounces the solemn words, but the cause is the grace and power of God. This is my body, he says. The speech, this speech transforms the offerings. In other words, the words of consecration is what transforms the offerings. Does everybody see? He's clear as a bell. And, um, oh, one more. I'm finally out of these things. I could have gone on for hours yet, because I haven't gotten to my, my hero, Cyril of Alexandria. He had great stuff to say. And uh, would you believe even that jerk Nestorius had good things to say about the Eucharist? It, it, it's great stuff. That could, <laughs> but I'm going to finish with this quotation from um, St. Gregory of Nyssa. Uh-uh. When Christ ate bread and drank wine, he assimilated them to his flesh and blood. We're talking about our Lord in this life eating dinner. When he ate uh, bread and drank wine, he assimilated them to his flesh and blood. The food passed into the nature of his body. Get this. Something similar happens in the Eucharist, but with a noteworthy difference. Today, the bread is sanctified by the word of God and by the prayer. It's no longer assimilated to the body of the word by the work of nutrition, but is converted instantaneously into the body of the word. Same change for the wine. Thus, by the power of the blessing, the consecration, the word trans-elements the nature of the things we see into his body. Trans elements. There's no such word in English. And he made one up in Greek. The word is metastoicheosis. Everybody have an aorist participle. Metastoicheosis. Trans elementifying. The nature of the things we see into his body. In other words, the, the bread on the altar does not get to be the body of Christ by being digested by our Lord. As though he's there invisibly eating the stuff. Not at all. The process here is not nutrition. It isn't even like a biological process because it's an instant change. Elthys. It is converted trans-elemented instantaneously into the body of the word. Same with the wine. 
Now, I want you to remember this ridiculous word. Metastoicheusis. Just change the A-S on the end to an I-S and you've got an abstract noun. Metastoicheusis. Because if you are of a Greek leaning, you like the Eastern Church, come on. This is their word for transubstantiation. It's the same thing, okay? And it goes back to that highly philosophical person, St. Gregory of Nyssa. And he uh, was writing this, oh, I don't know, about 560 or something like that. Um, uh, roughly a thousand years before Henry VIII got his filthy hands on the church in England. Okay. None of what I have been telling you is medieval. It all misses the Middle Ages by a thousand years. This is the unchanging and constant tradition of the church. That's why it will be worthwhile when I come back to you next week to talk about the nitty-gritty of the metaphysical details. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, until then, amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.